This morning, beloved, we are back in 1 Peter chapter 4 as we are working our way through this book. We're almost done, actually, pretty close to the end anyway. And we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 11. This is actually the third time back at this section, and, and this will probably be the last time. Uh, trying to conclude today, we'll see. But this is part three, so if you haven't been here in the past, you haven't heard, uh, welcome you to go on our website. All of the messages are stored there. You can catch up and, and listen. I'll do just a very little review today. We still have a lot of the text uh, to cover, but what I'll do right now is read the text, and then, and then we'll, we'll get into it, all right? You ready? All right, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. There's a blue Bible located underneath the seat around you. If you don't have a Bible, you can use that one. It's there for you. Page 1016 will bring you to the text. So the Apostle Peter writes these words. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, a little bit of review. The end. That's how the passage or the section starts in verse 7, the end. And I've said this multiple times, but it is, it is not the uh, end of the street or a termination of something that, that the word is communicating that Paul uses or Peter uses there. Rather, it's the consummation of all things. That's how the end should be understood. It is at the point at which something is brought to completion, okay? Or another way to say it is, the end here should be understood as the attainment of a goal or an objective. Peter is uh, speaking of the goal to which all the events of redemptive history have been leading, and they have reached that culminating point. So, where have all redemptive events been leading? And I spent last Sunday, the Sunday before talking at length about that, but it is leading to the coming kingdom of God, the coming kingdom of God. And just from last week, I quoted you from Dr. Bry, who wrote a book called The Kingdom of God. He said that we might with justice call the Bible the book of the coming kingdom of God. All things... Peter is saying, are, are ready now for Christ, for Jesus Christ to return and rule over the promised and glorious kingdom of God that is described in the Bible. The realization of this kingdom of God is at hand, It's another way to say it, of which the Lord Jesus Christ is the divine center. And the church's mission, the body of Christ, our mission is to 
tell sinners about our coming king and urge them, plead with them, exhort them to repent, to bow their hearts to this king, to our king, to the coming king, and trust in his wonderful salvation and worship and follow after him. That's our mission. The king is coming, and his coming is at hand. And we are here for a short time to make him known, to proclaim him, and to lead people to the coming king, that they might be ready for that great kingdom. The matter is urgent, beloved. It's urgent. And let me just state what you hopefully already know. It is only the children of God, and when I say children of God, those who are believers, saved by God's grace. That's how the Bible defines the children of God. We must become children of God. It is only the children of God, the redeemed of God, the forgiven and justified ones, the saved, who will enter into and forever enjoy the glorious kingdom of God in all of its glories. It is only them. Everyone else will be put outside of that kingdom, outside of that kingdom. Beloved, are you ready for the return of the king? Are you ready? You know you have neighbors that are not, yes? Family members, co-workers, but I'm speaking to you right now. Are you ready? His coming is at hand. It is near. Are you ready? And, and when I say that, I, I have to say this. I have to qualify it because it's so distorted in our culture and in our world and, and through the realms of religion and false religion. When I say, are you ready, I, I am not saying, have you done enough good things? to merit the acceptance of the king. That is not what I'm saying. That is what many, many think. Well, I'm not ready yet. And when you ask them, why aren't you ready? Well, I still got some things I got to clean up in my life, and I still got to do enough good deeds. I'm hoping, and they may not put it this way, but this is basically what they're thinking. I'm hoping I've done, do enough good deeds so that they outweigh all the bad deeds that I've done so that when the king comes, you'd be okay with me. But the scriptures are clear, that's not how you make yourself ready for the coming king. You'll never make yourself ready that way. It is only, beloved, it is only by trusting in the one who can make you right with God. And who can make you an everlasting citizen of the coming kingdom of God. And that is Jesus Christ. One is made ready for the king and his kingdom by coming to the king. And bowing before him and crying out to him. Save me. And trusting in his saving work on the cross. To make them right with God. To cleanse them of their sin. And to credit them with the righteousness that they need and that they don't have in order to enter into this righteous kingdom. Are you ready? 
most important question you'll ever ask or be asked, are you ready for the king? Beloved, I hope you are, and if you're not, you need to do something about that. And when I say something, again, it doesn't mean try harder, be better. It means come to Jesus Christ and in him find salvation. Turn from your sin and turn to him and be saved and be made once and for all and forevermore a citizen of this glorious kingdom in which Christ will rule and reign. Are you ready? Are you ready? I trust many of you are, but I also believe with all my heart there are certainly some in this room who are not, and we are pleading with you. I am pleading with you on behalf of this church. Come to Jesus and be saved. And for those of you who are ready, as I said before, there are many outside of this room that you know who are not ready. And worse yet, they may think that they are. But they're not trusting in the only one who can prepare them for the return of the king. Just to read a passage, just to let you be sobered by the reality that the end of all things is at hand. Concerning the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul says this in Thessalonians chapter 1. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven. Pause, stop. Think about how he came the first time. Very humble. Born as a baby, right? People, people seem to be okay with that Jesus, soft, cuddly, Cute, non-threatening, really lacking power. They're okay with baby Jesus. The world would rather us just leave him there, but he didn't stay a baby, became a man, lived the perfect life, went and died on the cross, being rejected by his people, paid the penalty for sin. But when he comes again, this is how he comes This is what is at hand. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Verse 8. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These who have rejected Christ, who have rejected the King, who have refused to bow their hearts to Him, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. These will be pressed outside of the kingdom. These will be cast ultimately into the utter pits and darkness of the place that we refer to as hell away from the presence of the Lord and away from the glory of His power. Sober, beloved. Or at least it should be sobering to you. This is what's at stake. This is why we now, right now, as we live in this present state, as the church, we are to make it our mission to make Him known and to call people to come to Him now. Yeah? 
That is what we are to do. The Lord, the King, is coming, his kingdom, they're at hand. It should sober you. It should motivate you. It should move you to tell others to do what we're supposed to be doing for the short period of time that we are here. And, and the idea is that it is at hand. It is at hand. It's near. Listen, it, it, means, it, it means that it could come at any time. All the events have led up to this moment. The curtain, as one said, someone said, scholar, could drop and, and the final act could come upon us. Christ's return, his glory, the kingdom. It could happen at any moment. That's what Peter believed. That's what we are to believe. But it's been 2,000 years since Peter said that, right? Right? So I, I told you this before. Peter doesn't say, he's not saying it's going to happen next week. He says, it is near, is it at hand? He's right there. He's at the door. When he decides, according to his timing, according to God's perfect plan, to open that door, he's there, but he's right there at the door. Meanwhile, we are to be busy, on mission, doing the work, telling people the king is near. Repent now. Because when he comes, he comes with judgment. Retribution. Repent now. Turn to him. Bow your heart. Bow your knee. But because we don't know if that's today or tomorrow or a hundred years from now, we still make plans, right? We're still to, to live out our lives. So Peter's not saying here, you're not, you shouldn't draw from this. Listen, I better you know, sell my house, sell all my stuff and, and quit my job and spend the next rest until I fall over telling people about Jesus. No. He may, he, may, he may wait according to his purposes and his plans and his patience and his long suffering as he draws all of his people unto himself. It may be another hundred years. So we make plans, right? Hopefully. We, we put money away, for things, and we buy houses, and we work. But while we're doing all that, we are to be doing it in anticipation of that he could come at any moment. It is present. It is near. And so it causes us to live differently in our jobs, looking to make Christ known in our places, wherever God has providentially placed us or put us in our neighborhoods, looking to make Christ known in our families, whatever family he has placed us in, even as messed up as it might be, making Christ known. For he is near. Today is the day of salvation. The king is coming. So we warn sinners. We plead with sinners. That is what we're to do, beloved, as the church of Jesus Christ. So that was a little bit of, oh yeah, one more piece of review. Uh, the immediate context of this passage is suffering. It's sandwiched in between two sections about suffering. The letter itself, one of the major themes of the letter is suffering. And again, suffering for following and witness to, witnessing to Jesus Christ, that kind of suffering. Not general suffering, but Christian suffering for living for the Lord and making him known. Okay? So keep that in mind. I'll tie it back in now as we look to complete uh, this section here. After he makes that statement, the end of all things is near, 
he begins to lay out a series of exhortations. The exhortations should be understood that they are made and connected back to that great statement, the end of all things is near. In other words, it's driving that, and we should always remember that, keep that in view as we think about these exhortations to the church, to the church, because that's what this letter was written to. It was written to churches, local churches. The end of all things is near, and then he begins to lay things out connected to that idea. The first one, we covered this last week. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And so quickly, we, I did this in detail last week, but in light of the fact that the end of all things is at hand, Christians then need to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the need, for the sake of their prayers, for the benefit of their prayers. And so what that means is they need to think clearly, maturely, correctly, soberly, so that when they pray to God, they might pray more appropriately or in a manner that is more suitable or more proper given the circumstances. What are the circumstances that you and I find ourselves in as part of the church age? What are the circumstances? This, that the goal to which all redemptive events have been leading is at hand. All things are ready for Christ to return and rule. And so our prayer should be impacted, influenced, controlled, guided by that fact. And so I said last week, we might pray uh, for work and for a job, and that is a good and appropriate. We're to cast all of our cares upon the Lord. But we must not end there. In light of the fact that the end of all things is at hand, we would, in, in line with God's desire and will and his plans, we would pray, Lord, whatever place you bring me to, whatever workplace I, you would find me in, not just that I would have enough money to provide for my family, yes, that certainly, but... In addition to that, and ultimately even more importantly, that I might be able to make Christ known there. For the end of all things is at hand. Help me, Lord, to to be a bold and accurate witness to you, Jesus Christ, wherever you might plant me to make money. You see? I would even say, I'll add this. Lord, give me a job where I have so much income that I have so much coming in that I would fund the church all by myself, if necessary. And you say, well, that's self-serving, Jeremy. That's self- Why would you say that? No, look, listen, it's not self-serving because we're all in this together. It's a partnership because we see that the church has been given a mission. And so even if not just for this church, that I might fund other churches, that I might fund missionaries as they proclaim and witness to the Lord Jesus Christ for the end of all things is at hand. You see? All right. Next exhortation. So they, you can go back, get some stuff, more stuff on prayer. But I, it's, it's that idea that you'd, you'd be sober-minded, self-controlled, not lose yourself and get caught up in the, in the, in the, in the moment of what's going on. These Christians were suffering. Don't, don't let that take you away and overcome you. Keep, your, keep self-controlled. In light of the fact that the end of all things is near, stay steady for the sake of your prayers. 
that you might continue to lift up to God prayers that are in line with the reality of your circumstances. Praying for the salvation of sinners. Praying that your witness to people would be appropriate and good and right. Praying that your life would not be confusing to people as you tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ and the fact that he has saved you to set you free from sin. And yet, you're struggling and continuing to walk in sin? So praying that God would do a work in you, make you more like Jesus Christ, that you would better reflect him, those type of prayers. But not just better reflect him so you can go, look at me, look, look how much, look how well I'm doing. No. So that people would see you, see Christ, and be drawn to him. So that they might turn to him. So that they might be saved, redeemed, so that they might be made citizens of this coming kingdom, so that they might escape the wrath to come, so that they might enjoy with you the glories of the one who stands at the door. Okay? Maybe a part four, we'll see. All right, so next exhortation. Look back at your text, please. 1 Peter 4.8. So again, in light of the fact that the end of all things is at hand, that the culmination of all things, the consummation of all things, the coming of the kingdom of God, the goal to which all the events of redemptive history have been leading, it's at hand, it's right there because the king is at the door, right? He's, he's accomplished redemption so that people could be part of this great kingdom. The church now is making him known that they might gather in from every tribe, tongue, and nation, people, Gentiles from all over the world to become citizens of this great kingdom. But the king stands at the door. In light of that, above all, text, I'm reading from the text now. Above all, most importantly, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. There is going to be a part four. Now listen. I, I want you to, I'm going to try to keep Keep the focus here so that we don't take one of these passages and remove it from the context. And, because then you lose the, the punch. You lose the meaning, really. You, you can take this out of its context, and then you, you lose everything that Peter has said around it. You don't really know what's going on. So I'm going to try to keep it focused. Remember, in light of the fact that the end of all things is at hand, He's addressed the issue of prayer. So therefore, be sober-minded, self-controlled for the sake of your prayers. Ultimately, for the, for the sake that, of, that God's will would be accomplished through the local church and through you individually as you carry out the mission to make Christ known. Okay? Now, he says, above all, right after talking about prayer, above all, though, most importantly, this is the most important thing, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins. Loving one another. He's speaking to the church. That's important. Understand. Go back to the first 
opening of the letter. He's speaking to churches. It's, this is not a general love for one another, uh, neighbor. We are to love our neighbor, absolutely. But understand who he's writing to, to Christians in local churches. So when he says love one another, he's talking about in the local assembly, loving one another. Here, right here, okay? Don't let it, don't go outside of this. Just keep it where it was, what it's intended to be. Right here, that means you over there loving you over there, you over there loving you right there. Yeah? You with me? Think that way because that's what's intended. And love one another means that it is a mutual love. This love then is to flow in both directions. So if I said to you, feed one another, that means that you would need to feed others, and it also means that you will need to be fed by others. Yes? So it's not just, hey, love Bob. The, above all, love Bob, because he's messed up earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. It's not that. I don't even think we have a Bob in here, so I always use Bob, just, just so that no one thinks I'm talking about them. And if I use your name, I'm not talking about you. It's just, it happens, okay? I'm probably not talking about you. So, love Bob. <laughs> love Bob. But he doesn't say that. He says, love one another. I just want you to capture this. I'm, I want to move a little slower here so that you don't miss this. Love one another. The context is the local church. Yes? Yes, because that's who the letter's written to. He's not just saying some type of general, oh, the world needs to come together and love one another. No, that's not what he's saying here. I'm not saying that we aren't to love our neighbor, okay? But here he's talking to the church. And this love goes back and forth. It is to be given and it is to be received because in both cases it is needed. All right, we'll come back to that in a moment. Keep loving one another, the text says, then what's the next word in the ESV translation? Okay. That's the English translation in the ESV. That's how they've translated the underlying Greek word. Let's consider these, this word for a second. Earnestly, that English word, the way we would define it, would be to do, to do it or to do something. If you do it earnestly, you would do it sincerely and with intense conviction. Uh, sincerely and with intense conviction, or, or seriously, okay? So not, as an opposite, not lightly or superficially, earnestly. Uh, the word earnest is used, as I'm sure Steve, our real estate agent, knows, it's used in relation to real estate transactions. Just to give you a word picture, how it's used in our modern-day culture, at least that English word, okay? Buyers may make a earnest money deposit to a seller, which is then held in escrow while the buyer attempts to secure, you know, continue the process and secure financing. So they say, I want your house. You want it? Yeah. Make an earnest deposit so that it'll be taken off the market while you attempt to arrange all the things you need to in order to secure the home. It's called earnest money because it shows that the buyer is a committed buyer. That's the idea of it. They're serious. Okay? 
And we know they're serious because if they withdraw and don't buy the home, they lose the deposit. Generally, I'm just using, yeah, right, Steve? Right, they lose it. So it's like, hey, I'm putting this down to let you know I'm serious, earnest deposit, get it? Okay, so that's the idea of the word. Here are a few other Bible translations, however, of the same verse, uh, 1 Peter 4a, and they use a different English word to translate the, translate the underlying Greek word. So 1 Peter 4a, above all, love each other, here's the NIV, what's it say? Deeply, all right? They're all trying to, to find the best, these translations, they're trying to find the best English word, based on the current understanding of that English word, to give you the full weight of that Greek word. But it's like with anything, when you do translations, it's sometimes difficult to get at everything that that word communicates when you translate into another language, right? You know this in Spanish, certainly. When you try to, sometimes when you try to bring an English word to explain that Spanish word, it just, it gets there but doesn't get all the way there. Yes? Please, affirm this so people don't think I'm making this stuff up. All right. Okay, so here's another translation, 1 Peter 4, 8. This is the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Above all, maintain an... Uh, what is that? Yeah, above all, keep your love for one another at full strength. Oh, that must be... So Holman has updated their translation. I wish I would have known that. And so what happens is I give Thomas my notes, and then he brings in these translations, and he told me, and I forgot, Holman has updated. So they've changed the word since. But that works, full strength, love for one another, full strength. That's actually pretty good. I like that. What they have in their uh, previous translation, we do this on the fly, guys, is intense, intense. That's a good word, full strength, intense. I like that one better. I wish I would have seen it, but now you're seeing it, and it's good. And I'll change my notes accordingly as we go. All right, and then the NET has what many of you might have been uh, familiar with, because you may have had the, in the past your King James or your new King James. Above all, keep your love for one another fervent. Fervent. Now, fervent, if I were to just explain, or def- if you look that word up, it's, the idea, again, is intensity, but it's, it's something that's marked by great intensity of feeling. And again, it just, fervent doesn't necessarily capture it either, not all of it. Intense, deeply, earnestly, fervently, with full strength, I like that actually. Uh, keep your keep your love intense with full strength because love covers a multitude of sin. Okay, so let's talk about the term itself, the Greek term, and let me show you why I'm. Uh, I think the English translations struggle a little bit to get there, to give you an English word that fully brings all of that word uh, to your understanding. One writer says this: the term, the Greek word that's being translated in the ESV, earnestly. The term was used to describe a horse at full gallop. Let that picture in your mind for a second. Have you ever seen that? I mean, yeah, it's impressive. Not trotting, not running, full gallop. You you know, horses are muscular animals, yeah? And you can, you see as they're, and the, the dirt is just ripping up behind them. And you see their muscles, like, right? Because they have very little fat, horses. Yeah? Do you see that image? Okay, so that's what the word was used to describe. Also, to picture the taut muscle, you know, taut. 
you can't see it, but it is. <laughs> I'm not like a horse. Or to picture the taut muscle, two words, of strenuous, it's that idea, <gasps> strenuous and sustained effort as of an athlete, a well-trained athlete. Because a lot of you call yourselves athletes, but... Uh, you are to some degree, but yeah, this is like, yes, well-trained athlete. Okay, so strenuous, the word strenuous, just I want to get it get there for you. It's requiring or using great exertion. So that's the idea of intensity, okay? So deeply, uh, like intense. And, and the Holman, the new translation, or the latest translation, full strength, like that, yeah? And fervent, but fervent can kind of, People kind of take that and start to mean like emotionally like intense. That's not the idea. That is not the idea. That's not what the word is communicating. So that's why I don't, fervent is, it's okay if you get the idea of intensity, okay? But if you think of just like, like passion, then you're, you miss it. So strenuous, requiring or using great exertion, sustained, it's sustained, effort, right? So it's without interruption. It's continuing for an extended period of time. It's prolonged. It's lengthy. Listen, outside of the Bible, this Greek word was used. One of the ways it was used was to figuratively uh, speak of someone who's speaking at length, speaking at length. In other words, they're in a sense, long-winded, like they're straining, but there's a straining and also a sustaining kind of speech. So the word was used in that way, too. They just continue to speak, you know, like I do every Sunday morning. I feel like this word every Sunday morning. Uh, so the idea, then, if we could try to put it all together of this word, is Christians are to maintain their love for one another, as one writer says, at the highest level, at the highest level. Uh, they are to love each other to the max. Okay? To the max. It's, a, it's not a superficial, half-hearted, part-time love, but a, a deep love, an intense love that doesn't let up. Get that picture of that horse in your mind. Yeah? See, so it wouldn't be flexing. It'd be more like that dead wind. Like, I'm tired just doing that, and I didn't have any weights in my hand. Oh, my goodness. That's scary. Okay. It's to be a pedal-to-the-metal kind of love. Would that work? I love cars, so... You know, the red RPM, and you don't let up. You don't go... You're giving it all you can, this uh, love. That's the kind of love uh, we are to have for one another. But, by the way, let me say this. You don't have the ability to love like that. This is why it's written to the church. It is a holy, I mean, it's one reason. It's because it's needful, I'll get to that in a second, for the church. But it's also only possible within the church because the church has the Spirit of God dwelling inside of them who empowers them to love like this, okay? So if you think you're going to find that in yourself, or you're going to like, you know, drum it up or work up to it, it's not going to happen. 
You're going to have to rely on the Spirit of God to love in this way. Holy and Spirit-enabled love, that's what it is. So, why? Why does Peter exhort his Christian readers to, to love to the max? Well, he says, he makes this point, and we'll bring it all back together in the context. He says, because love covers a multitude of sins. Who's he writing to? Yes, and not, not the church universal. So he's just not saying, you know, all Christians everywhere in the world. He's writing specifically to local churches. So we need to keep that in mind. Think about a local church, okay? Think about, you know, there's people over there, there's people over there. We interact with one another, yeah? He says, above all, above all, in light of the fact that the end of all things is at hand, the, the return of the king, he's there at the door, he's, he's bringing his kingdom, with it, he's bringing his judgment. The church has a mission. Above all, keep your love for one another earnest, right? Intense, at full strength. At full strength. Pedal to the metal. Because that's what you're going to need. <laughs> that's what you're going to need because love covers a multitude of sins. So how do we understand that? Here's a simple definition. One writer says, where love abounds, where love is at full strength in a local body, Christ, in a fellowship of Christians, many small offenses, and even some large ones, are readily overlooked and forgotten. Let me read that again. Where love abounds in a fellowship of Christians, many small offenses, and even some large ones, are readily overlooked and forgotten. All right. So let me just, we're going to, we'll end here with this love thing in a, in a moment. Uh, we won't move to the next one, which is hospitality, but they're all connected and all centered around the church its mission, the importance of its mission, the urgency of its mission in light of the fact that the end of all things is at hand. Peter's concerned about the church, cares about the church, loves the church. I had said to you, I said to you, I think last week that I think many Christians don't really understand the kingdom, the kingdom of God. I recommended a few books to you. It's glories, it's wonder, and, and so because they don't know it, they don't understand it, or they don't understand it rightly, it doesn't impact their life as it should. They don't live in light of it. They get kind of caught up in this world and the things of this world instead of the kingdom and the one that's coming and that Christ is bringing. I think, it's just, I think another tragedy is that Christians don't understand the church and the importance of the church and the mission of the church, and they don't appreciate the church, the local church evident by their lack of commitment to it or their take-it-or-leave-it attitude or their willingness to not to kind of participate but not all in. Peter cares about the church. He loves the church. The church is the body of Christ. The church has been left here to fulfill a mission, a mission given to us by our Lord, a very important mission, most important. 
But Peter knows something else, right? We sing that song. What was it called? Stumbling? What was it, what was it about? The day by day. How could I forget? Because you sing it over and over again. Day by day by day, right? But he says it's a, it's a picture of our, our growing in our faith and our sanctification and we're kind of messed up individuals, but we're still relying on God and trusting in his salvation and the spirit of God is still working in us. We're a stumbling saint, a stumbling saint. Remember that phrase? In our stumbling, let me say stumbling is like sinning. We're failing to do all that God has called us to do, and we, we stumble against one another in many ways. We sin against one another, okay? I, I think what Peter has in mind is what I would say are sins of omission, omission. Uh, so not doing what we ought. Generally, I'm thinking that's what he's, he's probably thinking about, sins of omission. So we are called to love one another and to care for one another and to be kind to one another and tenderhearted towards one another and concerned about one another. Yes, and when I say one another, all those one another's are directed towards Christians in local fellowships. Not a Christian who's not part of any local fellowship, or who likes to jump from one to the other to the other to the other, and they never, ever settle into any of them, That's, that, that is foreign to the mind of Peter. It would be foreign. The idea is you become a believer, and you are put into the body of Christ, and you, you partner yourself with that local fellowship of other believers in your area. And then there are commands to do this to one another, right? And so... I think he's thinking of those things when we fail to be kind and compassionate and considerate and loving and all of those things when we fail to do that, sin of omission. Love covers a multitude of sins, those type of sins certainly, it can. Small offenses, possibly some large ones, the writer says, but I'll tell you right now, he's not, Peter's not thinking, listen, if your brother uh, steals your car, which would be a problem in and of itself, but I guess it's possible a Christian might do something crazy like that, not thinking straightly. Maybe stealing a car is a bad thing. Let me try another one. Slander. A brother or sister in Christ in your local fellowship slanders you. I don't think Peter's saying, yeah, don't say anything, you know, just overlook that. He's not suggesting, that's not what he's suggesting. He's talking about minor offenses. If your brother or sister in Christ is slandering you, then you are, you sh- it would be appropriate and right and good for the fellowship and the health of the body to go to your brother and sister in Christ and bring that to their attention and seek their repentance and seek reconciliation between you two. You wouldn't just say, oh yeah, they're slandering me, whatever. I think he's thinking of more of just the incidentals, the things that happen as we, as we you know, rub up against each other, and we are not uh, smooth. We are sandpaper. Sin makes us sandpaper, and we, ow, rub. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, We don't speak well. We don't speak as we should to each other all the time. Sometimes we don't even speak... (laughs) when it would be right to speak to them, to, to show concern or care, but we're, instead of doing that, we're so self-centered that we, we do not care. We care not for our brother and sister in Christ, and it shows up in our behavior. That's sin. I think he's thinking about that. 
And he's saying, you're going to need love at full strength. Above all, love each other, each other at full strength because love covers a multitude of sins. You're going to offend one another. A minor, you're gonna, that's going to happen. That is a reality for us on this side of glory. Yeah? So can you imagine, can you imagine though, if, if every little offense you were trying to, to, to deal with that, like, like you would call attention to every little offense as a believer in Christ. So every time someone offended you or you thought they offended you, but they, they weren't even, so I'll give an example. Let me come back to that. They, they legitimately sinned against you in some way. They didn't do all that they should have done as a Christian. They didn't love you as they should. They didn't care for you as they should. Huh? Okay? So every time that happened, you stop the press. All right, so you call them over. You say, brother, you know, I can't believe how you just slided me like that. What are you talking about? Well, you know, I, I came in. I was... I was you saw me crying, you, you, you didn't, but you, you know, you didn't, you didn't talk to me, you didn't do anything, you didn't, you didn't show concern for me. Well, it could be, it could be that the person was so focused on themselves that they, they noticed you not, and that's not right. It could be they didn't even see you. It could be that. It could be they didn't know. They thought you had something in your eye. They didn't know you were crying. If they knew that, they would have came over and talked to you. I don't know. Either way, if it was legitimately, legitimately a sin, or even if it was thought to be a sin, but it wasn't because the person didn't even know, either way, love covers a multitude of those types of sins, meaning that it's just overlooked because if every time we sinned against one another in these minor ways, we had to make an issue of it, we'd kill each other. We, it'd be hard to get anything else done. Huh? No, come on. Okay, think, just think about the marriage. Because this applies certainly there. He's not writing to married couples, but it certainly applies to them. I'll tell you right now. I got to be careful I say this. I just realized that. Uh, all right. Uh, my wife, Hallie and I have a great marriage. We're still sinners, saved by grace, growing in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and becoming more and more like our Savior with each passing year by His grace. Thank you, Lord. Okay? But that doesn't mean that I don't. Uh, sin against my wife in, in, in a variety of ways. So again, this doesn't mean if I committed adultery that she would be like, whatever. You know, love covers a multitude of sins. Or if she came to me because I was committing adultery, that I would have the right to say to her, hey, you don't have any right to come to me and bring up this issue because don't you know love covers a multitude of sins? That's, you're totally abusing this text then. Because remember, the Bible also talks about a brother going to his brother in Matthew 18, if a brother sins against you, go and tell him his faults between you and him alone. Don't spread it to the whole church. Go to him and try to seek reconciliation. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Always the goal is reconciliation, harmony, and peace within the body because of the importance of the body, of the local church. Because if it falls apart, then its mission, at least in that local assembly, ceases to exist. It, it can't, it's not that the mission ceases to exist, but they, how are they going to accomplish it when they're infighting or they're broken up? 
So back to my wife. Love covers a multitude of sins. So in part, I think our marriage is what it is because she's got a bad day and, you know, I'm going to take this off of her. I have a bad day and I sin against her. I'm not saying that woman never sins. I'm just saying it's better for our relationship if I keep it on me. You understand what I'm saying? So if I have a bad day in the sense that, and when I, so we all have bad days, but then instead of doing what I should do, which is trusting the Lord, praying to Him, and still walking as He has called me to walk. My bad day is no excuse to sin against my wife. My bad day is no excuse to not serve her and love her as Christ loved the church. My bad day is no excuse for that. I know we try to make it that, but it's no excuse for that. I'm still called in the power of the Spirit of God to love that woman, to lay down my life for that woman, and I don't. But I, I am selfish or uncaring, or unkind, or impatient with her. That would probably be my thing. You know, that's where I struggle with patience, right? Then I've sinned against her. Now, that happens. It happens. Can you imagine if every time I did that, she was calling it to my attention? Because that's what some ladies do. Because I've counseled you guys. (laughs) And that is not healthy. It's not healthy. Either way, it's not healthy. Or you're just on them 24-7. Look what you did again. Look at this. Look at, you need to, you need to shape up. You need to, you need to grow in the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to call your pastor. Seriously, you need to call the pastor. and You need to get fixed. You are a messed up individual. Do you, you think that marriage is going to go well? Do you think it's any different in the church? If every little offense, you, gotta, you, got, you have to make a thing of that. And the reality is some of these offenses are not even real. In other words, the person doesn't even know that they offended you. In other words, there was no motive, no intent on their part, but it's just this little interactions back and forth, the way we communicate with one another. So keep earnestly loving those people, right? Keep earnestly loving one another. And and let me come back to this. Keep earnestly loving those people who sin against you, yeah? But remember, the text doesn't say that. It includes that. See, I'm back to this one another thing. Keep loving one another earnestly. One another. What did I say about that? It's mutual. It goes both ways. You need to give this love. You're going to need to receive this love. Right? So he doesn't say, keep loving those people who sin against you. Like, it's just you. Yeah? You got your stuff together. You're all good. And it's all those nasty brothers and sisters in Christ that just keep messing with you, keep being mean to you, keep being harsh to you, right? So, okay, yeah, all right, Peter, all these people offending me, I will, I need to, I need to keep earnest in my love at full strength because, so that I might overlook, to the degree that I can, their minor offenses against me. No. It goes both ways. Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. All Christians will need to give to others and receive from others this earnest love since we all sin against one another in various ways. Huh? You need to keep that in mind. We're just so quick because of pride and arrogance and all kinds of things. We're messed up. We're so quick. To call attention to everyone else. 
or those offenses against us, forgetting, how about you? How have you offended others? And when you have offended others, maybe you're not even paying attention, but when you have, would you want them to always call attention to all of your stuff, or would you want this beautiful, earnest, pedal-to-the-metal kind of love to, to, to overlook that, if possible, and to be patient with you and allow you to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and in His timing. And that can take longer than people are comfortable with. Would you want that for you? Why don't you give that then to them? Because that's what Peter calls. You give it, and you're also receiving it. It comes both ways. One writer says this. I'll close with this. Believers are still weak and failing. That's us, beloved. That's your pastor, and that's you, Christian, out there. We are still weak and failing. We are not yet perfected in their close associations with each other, in the brotherhood, in the local fellowship, they do regrettably encounter a multitude of sins. And now let me remind you, what was the context of this passage? Do you remember what I said at the beginning? Suffering. Let me ask you something. The suffering... Even, if, even just normal suffering, but suffering now, remember, specifically for the sake of Christ, for the sake of Jesus Christ, for your witness of him, for living for him. But let me say, does suffering normally make you more easygoing? Does it? I'd love to meet you. I'd love to meet you. No, suffering, suffering has, it can put you on edge. It's, you can quickly fall into kind of irritation. So here's this body of Christ. Here's these bodies, these local fellowships. Peter knows their suffering. He knows the temptation for agitation. You don't need that, by the way, to, to sin against one another. That just exacerbates the problem. You understand? It exacerbates it. And he says, listen, the end of all things is, is at hand. So above all, your your unity, your harmony, your peace is so important because without it, you will kill each other. You'll split. You'll divide. Or you'll be so angry all the time, you, you won't have your mind where it needs to be, encouraging one another, strengthening one another for the task that Christ has given you. To make him known. Especially in light of the fact that the king is at the door. So above all, keep loving one another at full strength. Because love covers a multitude of sins. You're going to need it for the sake of that local fellowship. And I can't tell you how many churches have split and divided over foolish things. There are, there are times when a church should split because of bad doctrine. But sadly, many churches have dissolved because of inner bickering over foolish, incidental, unimportant, in a sense, things. Let's pray. Father God, we, I pray for this local body. 
I, Father, I just I pray that we would take to heart uh, the words of the Apostle Peter. I pray that the local church, this local church that we are a part of, would, would be elevated in our mind, its importance and its unity and its harmony and its peace. That we would stop, if we're doing this, making everything about us. But seek the greater good of this body. Therefore, loving earnestly, deeply, intensely one another, giving it and hoping to receive it as we rub up against one another and offend one another in a host of ways. Father, I pray that we would have earnest love for one another so that it would cover over that, so that we might look away, not make a big deal out of every situation, spending all of our time bickering and being angry and resentful. forgiving and kind and even forgetting these minor offenses that we commit against one another. Lord, I also pray that you would continue to change us, right? Change us, Father, as you've already done, but continue in that vein, making us more like Jesus Christ so that we wouldn't offend each other as much. Because that's not right. It's not right that we don't treat one another as we should. It's not right. And Father, I ask for your forgiveness. But Lord, we are not yet perfected as you know. We are not yet glorified. And so here we are, the mess that we are, trying to accomplish your great mission. And sometimes we are our own worst enemy, the local church. Father, may we love one another earnestly. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.